Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each episode, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. We have a returning guest today, Drew Hinkes. Drew is an attorney with Carlton Fields, working as part of its national blockchain and digital currency practice. Drew is also the co-founder and general counsel of Athena Blockchain and is also an adjunct professor at the NYU Stern Business School and the NYU School of Law, where he co-teaches digital currency, blockchains, and the future of the financial services industry. Drew, thank you so much for being here again today. Hey, Sal. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, of course. And obviously, you have pretty uh, vast experience in the crypto space. Very commendable. Could you kind of talk a little bit more about your background for anybody that didn't listen to the last episode or isn't familiar with you? Sure. So I found my way into the crypto world, as many people did, in a circuitous way. I started in college not necessarily knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up and pursued a liberal arts education and basically finished my undergrad a year early and had a year left in undergrad. And it was 1999. And I said, hey, this, this internet looks like it's going to be a thing. <laughs> and so I started taking computer science classes and eventually after college started working as a computer consultant focusing on database administration and hardware architecture, network architecture, and the like with some uh, consulting firms. And then after a while, decided it wasn't necessarily the best fit for me, pulled the ripcord and went to law school, where I figured I'll never have to think about computers again. And then, you know, five, 10 years later, Bitcoin popped up and I, I looked at it and sort of soft circled it for a while and then eventually figured out that this was the perfect way for me to marry together the technical understanding that I had, some of the actual skills that I I learned and acquired from education and from work with law. Because I, I said, here's a technical system that's complicated, but sort of revolutionary in its architecture. And it is going to challenge a number of different ways that of the law approaches very basic concepts like money, like property. Here's a thing that's going to be meaningful that doesn't really fit squarely into any box. And so from 2014 forward, I sort of decided this is where I wanted to focus my career and my practice. And I've been incredibly fortunate to have a bunch of really wonderful opportunities come my way, as you just kind of mentioned with the brief overview of what I'm doing right now. I get to work with companies, which is wonderful. I get to represent clients in a variety of types of matters, which has been incredibly fun. And I get to teach students, which is probably the the thing I enjoy doing the most. And your education, having that experience with the computer science and then going into law, that kind of puts you in a unique area, right? That probably helped you quite a bit in this space. Sure. So many lawyers don't necessarily have a technical background. The jokes about PC load letter and the lawyers maybe not knowing how to check their email, those are a little antiquated now, but law has not traditionally been the most technology progressive sort of industry. So I had a little bit of a a head start over many of my peers because I know how to read some code, because I understand databases, and because I have experience working with technology, I might have had a little bit of a head start on wrapping my head around Bitcoin. I think it probably only took me about a year and a half to really get it. Yeah. All right. So last time you were on our podcast, we discussed gaps in the current crypto guidance, and you explained to all of us what it's like to teach a college course on cryptocurrency. That was back in June of 2019, which was a significantly different time in terms of everything, but definitely crypto taxation. So since we last spoke, Drew, what would you say has changed? Well, from a tax standpoint, we saw new guidance issued in the fall of 2019 that changed a few positions that the IRS had taken with respect to taxation of these assets. We saw a revenue ruling released in October, which was somewhat helpful and somewhat confusing, addressing forks of crypto asset systems. We have seen some 
interesting discussions happening with respect to what you are and are not required to disclose on your 2019 returns. We've seen some sort of intergovernmental disputing over the IRS guidance, and uh, we've actually seen something helpful coming out of FinCEN about foreign reporting obligations. So tax continues to be a very, very dynamic area with respect to crypto. And my expectation is that it will continue to be dynamic as the folks at the IRS come to learn, understand more, continue to interface with the industry like they did in March of 2020, where they had a closed door invite only meeting with industry that was apparently useful. And I'm optimistic that our civil servants who are devoting their careers to trying to figure out the right way to handle these issues will continue to learn and to interface with industry to find the right answers to some of these very uh, beguiling questions. You kind of mentioned that there's been a bit of a spotlight on crypto in the past, I guess, maybe six months or so with some new guidance, as you mentioned. Since the coronavirus has been affecting all of us. Do you think that that's going to push crypto to the side for the government? Do you think that there's going to be less guidance and less focus on crypto now that coronavirus is priority right now? Well, so that's a great question. If you kind of go back in time, as far as the IRS's approach to crypto, they issued guidance originally in 2014. And the guidance was in the form of frequently asked questions. And after that guidance was issued, not much happened. And in 2016, the Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration on September 21, 2016, issued a report called, As the Use of Virtual Currencies in Taxable Transactions Becomes More Common, Additional Actions Are Needed to Ensure Taxpayer Compliance. And this is the Treasury Inspector General basically writing a public report saying, hey, IRS, here's a bunch of things that you didn't do. One thing they said they didn't do was coordinate an overall strategy with a timeline for implementation as to how they're going to ensure that the IRS complies with its Bank Secrecy Act, criminal investigation, and tax enforcement obligations. And the IRS in response said, yeah, we know that we need to do that. The second thing they said is that the IRS needs to provide updated guidance to reflect its documentation requirements and the tax treatment for various uses of virtual currencies. The IRS management's response was, Our guidance allocation decisions are based on available resources and other competing organizational and legislative priorities. And the third thing that the uh, Treasury Inspector General said was the IRS needs to revise third-party information reporting documents so that third-party reporters are identifying the amount of virtual currency used. And the IRS responded and said, yeah, we agree. We'll look and see how much that's going to cost. But based on the IRS's current fiscal climate, the IRS is faced with competing funding priorities requiring a need-based prioritization of information technology expenditures. What they're really saying is if you want us to make a new form and require third parties to start reporting, we need to have a computer system that tracks all this. We need to have a database and somebody needs to pay for it and we don't have the funds. And this was the only recommendation in that report that I mentioned where the Treasury Inspector General came back and said, yeah, we know that you need money for this, but this is actually really important and you shouldn't blow this off. And so the response wasn't to do any of these things shortly after this report came out. The response was to then serve the John Doe summons on Coinbase. They said, okay, Treasury Inspector General wants us to do a whole bunch of things. We're going to go and get a bunch of data and a bunch of records from a third party instead of issuing new guidance. And another two and a half, three years later, guidance came out. Given 
the government's approach to the coronavirus emergency that has plagued the country. We could see a situation where there is so much attention being paid to the response and to trying to support people during this disaster and trying to keep the economy afloat and trying to do a whole bunch of other things to help Americans. It could be that the issuance of additional guidance is just not a priority right now. I, I have no independent insight as to what the IRS is or is not thinking or doing right now. Right. I will say anecdotally, other agencies that are focused more on enforcement, like the SEC and the CFTC, have not stepped down their efforts because of the coronavirus disaster. They have still continued their enforcement activities. Again, we're sort of reading tea leaves here, but it would not surprise me if we saw some of the same issues that plagued the IRS between 14 and 19 pop back up where issuing additional guidance might be deprioritized, at least on a temporary basis. Right. And it really is, like you said, we're reading tea leaves because, I mean, it seems like it takes the IRS so long to give us new guidance. I mean, from 2014, there was official guidance in October 2019. And as we kind of no, it was actually a bit confusing, that new guidance. And so maybe some saw that as a sign that the IRS was going to start ramping up the, the official guidance. The government was going to start focusing more on cryptocurrency and letting us know what we're supposed to be doing, how we're supposed to be paying taxes on it officially. But everything with coronavirus going on, obviously, one would think they might push that to the side. However, in one of the economic stimulus draft bills, they discussed digital dollars and digital dollar currencies. Obviously, those didn't make it to the final bill. But it was interesting that they were discussed, at least. Sure. I saw a few of those bills. I'm going to be careful about what I say, except to note that digital dollars from a government-issued digital version of a U.S. dollar would potentially, depending on its architecture and how it's controlled, be an efficient way to push value to people directly in times of economic stimulus, where economic stimulus is necessary. One of the big issues people are dealing with right now is, okay, Congress has authorized that individuals are going to receive payments and businesses can apply for various loans and various grants and various other types of financial assistance. How do you get the money out? If you want to actually send out checks, you have to find people. You have to actually mail them out or you have to physically transport the check. If you want to do this digitally, somebody needs to be able to connect the person's identity with a bank account. And so a digital asset where you know that a person is able to actually receive that asset digitally without having to worry about mailing or worry about confirming identity associated with bank accounts might be a compelling option. Right. So in general, how do you think the world of crypto has been affected by the coronavirus? Well, from a sort of a macro standpoint, there has always been certain sort of non-traditional communities that blocked to Bitcoin and to cryptocurrencies generally. Some of the earlier communities were very focused on alternative economic systems, seeing Bitcoin as something that can change the way the world works, take a separate money from the state and so forth. And there was a large community of people who were preppers thinking that governments were going to fall and that economic systems, since they've gone off the gold standard in 1970, were destined for failure. And to a certain degree, these communities probably feel somewhat vindicated because we've seen the overall fragility of our economy Although, in all fairness, very few people were thinking in a rational way that, okay, 2020 is going to start, there's going to be massive fires in Australia, there's going to be a tremendous invasion of locusts in Africa, there's right. going to be a global pandemic where people will stop socializing outside of their homes that will cripple the 
entertainment, transportation, hospitality, and most uses of discretionary income stress supply chains and basically change the entire way the world works. Krakatoa is going to explode. We'll start to see other diseases pop back up because of the unavailability of certain medical services. These are just things that most people were not preparing for. So to the extent that there was a kind of a minority but not insignificant prepper or the system is going to fail crowd within the crypto community, those folks probably were a little bit better prepared than others. It's really interesting that you bring that up. And and I think those are the same people that if by chance they're listening to this podcast, they cringe every time I bring up governmental involvement in cryptocurrency. It's hard to imagine a world where government is not in some way involved in cryptocurrency. There were vast amounts of value being used for a variety of purposes, including some that are not so good. So if only to prevent the facilitation of crime using these assets, some government involvement was inevitable. Then when you start getting mainstream economic players involved and you see people doing things like market manipulation, it seems inevitable that there will be more involvement of government. But I tend to look at government involvement as a positive because every law that says this is how we want you to do a thing involving crypto is another way of saying we are not going to kill crypto. Crypto is going to be alive and involved as part of our economic system. So if you want to see these assets continue to be viable within the economic system, regulation is is sort of a signaling of saying we are not going to kill it. We are not going to bar it. We're not going to ban it. We are going to allow it to coexist. We need you to play by these rules. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, it's a double-edged sword for a lot of people. It's like you just said, the government really has to be involved if we want mass adoption to really occur with cryptocurrency. Having the government involved is inevitable and it's a good thing because it'll encourage adoption. I understand that people don't love having government oversight into a lot of parts of their lives. Again, that's a political discussion, but in this case, it seems like it's going to be a good thing for crypto because it encourages adoption. Yeah, I I prefer to steer away from the political aspect. Everybody can talk about how it should be done, but the fact that it is being done to me is a legitimizing statement or a factor. And ultimately, the great thing about our country is that we have a means of changing policy. It's by voting and putting in legislators and government officials who take positions about policy. And so if we don't like the way that a certain thing is being done now, we go to the polling place, we can put our votes in the ballot box, and we can bring in new leaders and new legislators who can implement their vision of the world. And we have had some politicians that are kind of familiar, I guess, with crypto or that you would think would help the crypto community. I mean, Andrew Yang, for example, he talked about crypto a lot. I mean, he ran for president, so that's an extreme example. Kelly Loeffler was the former CEO of BACT and not the greatest example with everything going on concerning her alleged insider trading. But having politicians that have familiarity with crypto is certainly going to be helpful as well, I would think. Sure. And there's been a pretty sizable effort by the community through certain organizations and certain individuals who have sought to reach out to the federal government and try to raise awareness and facilitate education about these assets. And you can argue about whether you think one group is doing a better job than the other and whether the legislative proposals have been as, uh, the best that they could be. But ultimately, all ships rise with the tide. The more people that are thinking about and talking about it and are getting past the sort of mainstream objections and actually looking at the technology and understanding the importance of this going forward for the world, the closer we get to better regulation, to better laws related to these assets. 
Is there such thing as a crypto lobby? There is. There are several organizations that are very active. Interesting. They would be like based off of the exchanges themselves lobbying or just like a group lobbying for crypto rights or a bunch of those, a mixture of those? So there are think tanks that talk about crypto assets. Some of the conventional think tanks play in this area. Coin Center is probably the best known among the specialty think tanks that are active in putting out information that can be helpful for government. Some of the folks there, Jerry Brito and Peter Van Valkenburg, have testified in front of various committees of Congress to substantially positive, in my view, effect. And there are a bunch of different organizations that are made up of different elements of the business community associated with crypto that also have their own organizations that have been impactful. I know with one of my guests, we had spoke a little bit about a potential crypto tax bill of rights, you know, because there is the tax bill of rights. And mm-hmm. so a crypto tax bill of rights may be something that is necessary, but potentially unlikely. Well, I think if you look at the tax bill of rights, you've really got two areas where you could make an argument that the IRS has sort of fallen down. And actually the first right, which is the right to be informed. Mm-hmm. Given that we've had two FAQs, one of which has been very quietly updated twice without any notice, one revenue ruling, a bunch of statements. And really what most people don't understand is that the IRS can change these, these statements whenever they want. They're not necessarily binding. They can be challenged in court and a judge can decide that what a party advocates for is better or makes more sense or is more reflective of the law than the guidance. So the fluidity and the sort of work in progress aspect of this has been very confounding for a lot of uh, taxpayers. And so you could look at it and say, you know, we have a right to be informed, but we're really not being properly informed here. You also can look at the right to a fair and just tax system. And you can say, if we really don't know what's expected of us, if the guidance is changing without warning, if the information being broadcast is not clearly indicating that it's guidance and it's not binding upon the IRS, is this fair? And there are some pretty strong arguments to be made that the taxpayers deserve better. I don't know whether I would take that approach myself. I I do my best to comply with the law when I personally file my taxes. So my admonition for people who are listening is, if you have a question, don't rely on the fact that the guidances out there are not you know, equivalent in force to actual laws. But I would say, you know, find a skilled, educated tax preparer, work with them, and uh, do your very best to comply with the law. All right, let's switch to a more personal note, Drew. So coronavirus, obviously, everybody knows that's going on. It's affecting a lot of people. How has it affected your work and your personal life? And is there any silver lining that you can talk about, about you know, how your life's changed since coronavirus? Sure. I think at this point, almost everybody knows somebody who's been personally affected by this. And it's scary. And it's a time of some sort of confusion and unpredictability in our lives. So, you know, a lot of concern for people among family and friends who may be ill and hoping for the best. Personally, uh, I've been spending a lot more time at home, which has been great to have more time with family. Thankfully, we're in a world where we have technology that allows us to communicate effectively. And as a lawyer who does not primarily spend his time in court, it has not been a tremendously disruptive transition for me. My law firm provides us with wonderful online resources, and we have collectively all been, I think, very successful in adapting our practices to the online and remote world. To me, it shows how flexible and adaptable people really can be, where no one's happy about being sheltered in place or 
encouraged to stay home. We're all social people. At least I really miss being around a lot of people, but I'm, I'm fortunate to have a, a, a wonderful family and to have a lot of flexibility. But I think that we'll find that people are very adaptive and very resilient. And I think that the world is showing that even if we can't be physically together, that people still are prioritizing finding ways to still be together. We have Zoom and Skype and LoopUp and all these other platforms that have made video conferencing incredibly easy and cheap. And so I feel like a lot of families have gotten together for religious holidays over the last few weeks using Zoom or these video chatting systems. I know that there's been a lot of entertainment adapted toward the online world. I'm a huge music fan, so I've really enjoyed all of the various streaming and online music that's been occurring. We're, you know, a couple of weeks into this sort of new normal. And so for now, everybody is being, I think, on the whole, pretty well behaved and pretty patient, which is encouraging. And the hope is that once it's safe and once it's smart, we'll all get out there and really enjoy all the freedoms that we have and all the rights that we have and really treasure the time that we get to spend together again. Yeah, well said. You know, when we watch movies where there's global catastrophes, the kind of cliche is that the best of humankind shines through the catastrophes. And as corny and cliche as that is, that's absolutely happening now and is absolutely evident now during the coronavirus. And it is nice to see and it is refreshing to see. Yeah, it's entirely possible that we emerge from this experience with a new appreciation for togetherness and a new appreciation for the positive effect that uh, stopping all of our travel and consumption has had on the environment. And it's entirely possible that we have a new and different outlook on life that is more collaborative and more focused on togetherness. So it would be, I think, a wonderful thing. Yeah, there's certainly some silver lining there. It's always good for somebody's mental state to look for silver lining in things, I think, to not only focus on the negative, but to try and find some of the positive of anything that's occurring in your life. It's easier said than done sometimes. As an attorney, it's interesting. You're, you're thinking to yourself, and in times of crisis, what, what are attorneys doing? And as you might imagine, we're doing a lot. People are trying to figure out how to keep their businesses open and mm -hmm. how to access some of these government programs and some of the subsidies and some of the benefits that are available. And so we've been very, very busy assisting our clients, both with what we were doing for them before, but also to sort of adapt to this new environment. Initially, there was kind of a surge to either get some deals closed or figure out how the change conditions affect deals. But as far as my specific practice goes, the crypto world has had kind of a, an interesting response. We have not seen the sky fall on us by any means. Right. And rather encouraging. Yeah, right. Absolutely. The price isn't $5 per Bitcoin or anything like that right now. Well, it's sort of interesting because if you follow it along with some who said this is an uncorrelated asset and if, you know, if the traditional markets are to suffer greatly, then we should see a surge in Bitcoin prices. That didn't happen. And there are a bunch of different theories as to why that's the case. I try not to speculate myself, but anecdotally, what I've heard from folks is that a large amount of the Bitcoin and some of these other asset prices were buoyed by folks that were trading in leveraged positions. And given the expected cash crunch, People wanted to get out of leveraged positions to get into cash. And so that created some downward pressure. That's a story that I'm hearing. Hmm. I have no idea whether there's any truth behind it, but that's something that I heard. I think it's going to continue to be interesting to see how traditional markets react to the government programs and how they view an inherently deflationary asset like Bitcoin 
and how they view some of these other projects. I wouldn't doubt what you said about leveraging is has some validity to it because being in the crypto tax space and dealing with people who are in crypto, I've seen such a, an upward trend of margin and leverage trades and that type of trading just from the mainstream crypto audience. That seems so popular and it's been popular for a while, but it just seems to be increasing in popularity. So I wouldn't doubt that that's a, a big factor. Yeah, I, I want to be careful with my comments about trading because nothing that I say should be interpreted as legal advice or business advice in this context. But I think that consumption or people that believe in Bitcoin, I don't think that this is necessarily shaking their belief. And I think that there are people who don't believe in Bitcoin, but see what the government is doing with respect to quantitative easing and are starting to perhaps to understand the appeal of an alternative. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Drew. So in terms of crypto, and we're talking about how we're all going to have to change and react to this kind of new world. How does crypto play a role? And how do you think people should prepare in general for this new future? Well, I think the coronavirus challenge has brought to the forefront some elements of how the economy works that we don't usually really think about that much. Mostly folks in finance world think about who's really pulling the levers and how central governments control economies. We've seen the need to get cash out into people's hands and how, at least in the United States, the Federal Reserve can produce as much money as is necessary in order to fund this. So in these new change conditions, there are new opportunities. Again, I try not to give business or legal advice on a podcast, even this one, Sal, but <laughs> my, uh, my suggestion would be for people to think about being flexible and to think about being adaptive. I don't think a successful investor strategy right now, it looks at the economy the same way that they did a year ago. And so as people start to think outside of their comfort zones and start to figure out ways to be nimble as conditions change, it's entirely possible that folks will come around and understand that instruments like Bitcoin and some of the other alternatives arising out of the crypto world might become new attractive options. I think what else will be interesting is when the economy starts to kind of rebound It'll be interesting to see the, the price of crypto, you know, certain crypto assets and see how they react to the economy rebounding. I mean, like you were saying, if it is kind of correlated to the traditional stocks and the traditional economy, it'll be interesting to see if we see a spike in prices when we do bounce back. You know, I wish I could time the value of anything. Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> it would be great to know. We just have to sort of hope that the smart folks making decisions about how to manage our economy going forward continue to make smart decisions. A lot of people are relying on the federal government and their state governments to make smart decisions for their health and their safety and for the safety and the health of the economy as well. So, Drew, we hear a lot about tokenization. Can you kind of describe tokenization, what it is, and why are we hearing a lot about tokenization? Sure. So I guess the simplest way to think about tokenization in this context is the attempt to create a digital representation of a real life thing, whether it's property, whether it's a right or some sort of asset. The concept behind tokenization is you can create a digital twin of the item and then take advantage of the powers and rights associated with tokenization versus the physical asset. For example, a token that represents a property right or a house. The argument goes, if you tokenize that asset, you can take advantage of the speed of transaction, the liquidity associated with the asset. That's sort of the big picture idea. So the, the overall goal would be to just kind of ease, to make things a bit simpler, to make complicated tasks a bit simpler. Would that be the overall goal of tokenization? 
Well, if you like smart contracts, one of the appeals of a smart contract is that you can, using logic, automate or streamline transactions. Mm -hmm. But smart contracts, as we have learned, work best in the blockchain context when the assets at issue are digital. So if you can create a digital version of an external thing, the idea goes, you can make a bunch of new, more efficient transactions related to that thing. That's sort of the big picture idea. But of course, there are some complications to this. Let's take the house as an example. If I have a, a token that represents my house, then the idea is I can do a transaction of that token to another party, and then the bearer or the holder or the party that controls the, the token can then control the house. Cool idea, but it sort of ignores all of the legal and regulatory infrastructure around a home. Homes are very infrequently owned outright. So you may have a lending relationship that needs to be satisfied in order for that transaction to occur. Simply transacting the token associated with the home to somebody else doesn't necessarily clear up the lending issue. Houses are, at least in the United States, uh, based on a title system. And in the United States, real property is not this unitary right. There's a, as I call it, a bundle of sticks associated with property rights. And so with a given home, you can have riparian rights, which are the rights to water that flow on the property. You can have easements, such as which are carve-outs of the exclusive right of possession and use that allow power lines to be run, sewer systems to be run, cable utilities, telephone, and so on are all done by easements on the property to allow them to run their lines and run their pipes. You can have mineral rights if your property has oil or coal or rare earth minerals or something else on it that you can delegate to somebody else. And you have air use rights if somebody wants to build where it would overhang your property. So the idea of this unitary thing called house is overly simplistic. Transactions for homes require a bunch of legal formalities to be effective. Typically, you have to execute a deed, and the deed itself has to be done in a certain way. It has to be signed in wet ink, and it has to be witnessed by a person called a notary that has a stamp that goes on the document, and that has to be done in real life and maybe not done on a tokenized platform. And for that conveyance to actually be effective as to third parties, it has to be recorded in the recorder book that's maintained by an official called a county recorder at the courthouse or government office at the county seat. And so if you want to actually replicate that transaction in a digital way, you have to either change the way the law works or you have to have the law recognize this new system. And to my knowledge, there are very few tokenized systems that actually are designed around and reflective of the law that impact the item that has been tokenized. And even if you want to go to a, a much simpler example than a home, like a tokenized gold, for example, for somebody to give you something of value for tokenized gold, there needs to be trust that there's actually a thing of value underlying that tokenized gold. And so what that means is, if you're considering dealing in tokenized gold, you may want to know that the issuer of that tokenized gold instrument actually has the gold. Mm -hmm. And how do you gain trust in that issuer? You have to have somebody that audits it, or you have to have some sort of representation made. And the amount of trust that goes into that tokenized instrument, one would expect, would impact its value in the market. So tokenization of real-life assets is an incredibly interesting and intriguing idea. But working around some of the economic, social, and legal friction is what really kind of will make or break the concept. And when you get to things like tokenized versions of investments, you look at it and you say, okay, you know, I have a troy ounce of gold 
that I hold in my hand. I could have a depository receipt with a well-known vault that is audited that is more trusted. So that might actually be worth more. I can buy a variety of different investment products, including gold spiders, including gold mining companies, including trusts that hold gold that are audited. If I'm trying to figure out the business case for having a tokenized instrument of gold, I have to think about what do I get with my tokenized instrument that represents gold that I can't get with all these other assets that are related to, or in certain cases, are actual gold. And so if you have lower friction in transactions, that might be valuable. If you have the ability for the instrument to traverse nation-state borders in a way that the other assets can't, that might be more valuable. If it's more secure than physically lugging around bags of gold, that might be more valuable. So I'm not entirely bearish on the prospect, but I'm deeply in search of when people tell me that they're going to tokenize a thing, I'm looking for the value proposition in tokenization, which has to be a blend of here's a new functionality, here's a greater benefit, here's a new ability that this thing has in its tokenized form that it doesn't have in its other forms. And here's how the legal regulatory friction is the same or less than the prior form. So this may be simplifying things, but when I think of this, when you describe the gold, tokenizing gold, would I be wrong to assume then that there would always be some sort of centralized entity involved in a tokenized asset, especially when you're talking about gold? So I I shy away from terms like centralized or decentralized because they're imprecise. I don't really know what they mean. Well, I guess when I say centralized, I think of an entity that can confirm that that value is there, that there is that gold there that they're saying they're tokenizing. That's what I think of. Yeah. So at some point, there needs to be some party or group of parties, and they can be structured however you want, Mm -hmm. that are responsible for verifying that the underlying asset's there. Tether very famously has litigated over whether Tether has given proper and true representations into the market about the assets that are held underlying each Tether. The market seems to like some of the assets that are issued by some of the New York trust companies because they're obligated and subject to audits to confirm that they're actually holding the amount of real life non-crypto value against the assets that they issue. So yeah, there needs to be some sort of party that is responsible and trusted in order to hold the underlying assets that create the value for these new instruments. Hmm, interesting. And what you had said about houses, tokenizing houses and real estate, sounds like there are a number of complex kind of infrastructures that exist in the world of housing. And those would have to exist in the tokenized form as well, which sounds like it would be a complete undertaking to do that. That's not to say that systems related to real estate transactions using elements or aspects of the cryptocurrency sort of tech stack can't be useful. Mm-hmm. or helpful in any way. The first thing that I ever wrote about crypto, which was published in 2014, talked about a future where smart contracts were used in lieu of escrow agents. You know, If you've ever bought a home or bought real estate in the United States, there are steps along the way. You put some money down, you have a certain amount of time to have an inspection. If you reject the property because something shows up in the inspection and the two parties to the transaction can't work it out, or if the time passes and there's no objection, then the escrowed monies, they call it go hard. They become hard monies that are then owned by the seller no matter what. And so I wrote about a future where we no longer have to litigate over these escrow agents, sometimes not doing their jobs, 
the smart contracts automate this. And so there's an article out there that talks about the death of specific performance. And specific performance is the legal claim that you bring when you want to compel the escrow agent to do their job. And I said, here, smart contracts might be useful to avoid the problem of rogue escrow agents in these sorts of transactions. And I still think that that's an interesting use for this kind of technology. So I'm not entirely bearish by any means on this. I think that we need to be realistic about what we can use these things for now. And we need to think about what we can use these things for in the future. Yeah, it's certainly interesting to think about where it'll all go and how long it'll all take. You know, will it take 20 years for these things to be uh, commonplace? Will it take five years? It's really interesting to think about the future and it's kind of so unknown, like where everything will be in a few years with crypto, at least from my perspective. So I, I look at things obviously with more of a legalistic bent than many others do because of what I do for a living. And there are many people who say, okay, you know, the law prohibits us from doing these things and it's very frustrating. And why doesn't the law just like figure out how to work with us? You know, there are legislators out there that have offered up a variety of different bills, both on the federal and state level, seeking to legislate around involving, including, or for crypto assets. I'm currently writing an article right now, which I hope it's in the next few months, an academic article, analyzing all, I believe it's all 65 different state statutes that have been proposed that include some definition of blockchain, blockchain network, decentralized ledger, distributed ledger. And in doing research for this article, I came to understand that there were something like 190 different bills that have been proposed by various states addressing a variety of different things involving the crypto world, from giving tax incentives to encouraging mining in certain states to amending laws of evidence to creating new business forms that leverage blockchains to facilitating new types of securities to creating carve-outs where people working in the blockchain industry can't be subject to non-competes, to very, very strict consumer protection laws, to pilot projects looking at using blockchains for water conservation, just across the board. And I'm involved in in an effort involving a few very distinguished legal organizations that are looking to revise commercial law in order to more elegantly incorporate transactions, including digital assets, including cryptocurrencies. So the time of the crypto world thinking, man, the law just doesn't get us and isn't thinking about us and everything is punitive and restrictive. In my view, those days are gone. What we see now is the law working to embrace these assets in a way that make them workable. And to me, that's very exciting. Very exciting. And I'm happy we have people like you that are doing the work and doing the research and pushing forward the goal of crypto. I never really thought that that would be my place in the world. I'm happy that I get to do something that I love every day. And I get to work with people who are building things and getting involved in and resolving disputes in an area that I care about. Glad that I get to build something with co-founders who I really care about and who are wonderful people in my business. And I'd say the thing that I enjoy the most is working with students who are interested in the area to help them learn about how the world works now and how they can try to be driving forces for betterment using these technologies and assets. To me, working with students is the most fun that I have. Okay, Drew, so that's a lot of good information about tokenization. I have one final question about tokenization, and that would be, what are your thoughts about tokenizing investment products? So investment products are very interesting in that they are, at this point, more or less already digital assets, but they are digital assets that live kind of in a closed environment. When you go on a US-facing investment website like an E-Trade or a Schwab, 
you might think that you're looking at your portfolio of your assets, but really what you've got there is a list of what are called securities entitlements. And securities entitlements are a thing that your broker-dealer, which is, in this case, E-Trader Schwab, maintains on your account. It's a list that they have that says, okay, Hinkis owns 5 IBM and 10 Berkshire Hathaway and 20 Apple. Really, what I have is a ledger entry that's maintained by, let's say, Schwab for me. And Schwab has a ledger entry that it reconciles with a bunch of other broker-dealers against a company called the Depository Trust Company, which actually maintains all of the securities for most companies through a company called Seed and Company, which works as its nominee, that has a vault with a bunch of pieces of paper that says, here's the jumbo certificate for all, and I'm just making this up, IBM stock. Mm. So you're already working in a multi-party, in some cases centralized, very complicated, multiple actor environment. So there is a potential here for significant streamlining of securities transactions using blockchains and using smart contracts. And there has been a lot of discussion of tokenization of securities as giving us an opportunity to remake this system in a way that is faster, cheaper, and more likely to be better policed. So I'm myself very interested in what this new reformed sort of system for transacting securities in token form would look like. But to get a lot of attention and a lot of use of these systems, we need to have a couple of things happen. We need the legal regulatory environment to embrace these new models. So far, the legal regulatory environment has been more or less unfriendly. Mm -hmm. We need to find compelling products to buy and sell. And so far, we have not seen a really compelling set of products out there. Most people that are selling securities aren't really having a problem selling them in the traditional way. So we need to find products that make sense. And the last thing we need is we need trading venues, whether they're national stock exchanges or what are called ATSs or alternative trading systems to go online, be approved and start to be used in mass. And so we need to kind of get regulatory approval for the trading venues. We need to encourage issuers, those who are actually selling the securities, to come up with investment products that are compelling that you would buy irrespective of their form but to offer them in ways where there's an actual benefit by making them tokenized. And then we need to have people using these marketplaces. And I think if we get those elements together, then you can start to get the things that we expect from markets, price discovery, an analysis sector that looks at tokenized investments and says, here's a reason you might want to buy that one versus this one. I think that it's an area where there's the prospect of a lot of innovation in the future, but I think that there are a couple of roadblocks that have kept us from getting there. And I look forward in our post-corona world to seeing that happen. Yeah, I'm sure many people do. And do you think that these tokenized investments would follow the same kind of taxation rules that we see in the crypto space now, or is that a completely different ballpark of so, taxation? So that's a great question. And that's a question that a lot of people have asked. The tax guidance so far speaks to virtual currencies. And it has changed between the 2014 guidance which said virtual currencies may be used to pay for goods and services or held for investment, that they're a digital representation of value that functions as a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and or a store of value. And then they talk about convertible virtual currencies, those that have an equivalent value in real currency, and they use Bitcoin as an example. That's from the 2014 guidance. Mm -hmm. And they refer to the 2013 FinCEN guidance. The 2019 tax guidance gives a slightly different definition of virtual currency. It says it's a digital representation of value other than a representation of a U.S. dollar or a foreign currency. They use the term real currency. 
that functions as a unit of account, a store of value, and a medium of exchange. So now it's all three. They say some are convertible. And then they say that the IRS uses the term in its frequently asked questions to describe the various types of convertible currency that are used as a medium of exchange. So in the old guidance, it said medium of exchange, unit of account, and or store of value. Now they say, we're just talking about those that are used as a medium of exchange. And while this might, you might think, okay, that clarifies things a little bit, it really doesn't. Because what about an NFT, right? A non-fungible token, like a crypto kitty, mm-hmm. might be thought of as, okay, this is digital art. But what if you're doing transactions where you're paying somebody with a crypto kitty? Does that mean a crypto kitty now is virtual currency for, these, for the purpose of these frequently asked questions? No idea. One of the big concerns has been, as there are tokenized versions of securities, should we treat these like securities or should we treat these like virtual currencies? The tax guidance has never come out and said one way or the other. Most prudent practitioners that I'm aware of look at a tokenized version of a security and say, okay, it is probably going to be taxed and we're probably going to look at it like a security and use the rules that uh, relate to securities instead of to virtual currencies. But by no means am I suggesting that there's any clear-cut guidance on the issue. Again, I would suggest that you go and talk to your tax preparer and get professional advice. All right, Drew. So that was a ton of great information. I'm happy to have spoken with you again. For anybody that wants to reach out to you, what's the best way for somebody to get in touch or to find out more information about you? Thanks, Sal. If you want to reach out, best way to find me is on my website, andrewpinkus.com. And you can follow me on Twitter. And that's at Propel Forward. If you want to read a little bit more about me, you can check me out on the Carlton Fields website. That's the law firm I work for, www.carltonfields.com. Great. And yeah, we'll, we'll have links for all of that up. And if you want, we'll throw up a link to your uh, 2014 article where it sounds like you were kind of ahead of the times. It's embarrassingly old. <laughs> like I was talking about Bitcoin 2.0 instead of blockchain. Like that's how old it was. Yeah. Well, hey, I don't think anybody could fault you at that point in 2014 because people still use the term blockchain incorrectly and blockchain technology incorrectly, myself included. So I don't uh-huh. think anybody would fault you back in 2014 for saying it incorrectly. Oh yeah. The Bitcoin 2.0 generation of technology. Yeah. <laughs> so, All right, man. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on again. I really appreciate it. Hey, it's a pleasure. I appreciate y'all calling and stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. Thank you everybody for listening to the Bitcoin Taxes podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for more cryptocurrency and blockchain related podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Cryptocurrency Informer released every Friday. Have a great day and stay safe, everybody. The Bitcoin Texas podcast was created by Colin Mackey and Salvatore Vesio and edited and produced by Isabel Chaparro and Salvatore Vesio.